Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. From fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. All any of us can buy is time, Stu thought, Pete's lifetime, his children's lifetime, maybe the lifetimes of my great-grandchildren. Until the year 2050, maybe. Surely no longer than that. Maybe not that long. Time enough for poor old Mother Earth to recycle herself a little. A season of rest. Hello, Books and Nachos listeners. This is Arnie here with my sixth and final chapter in my review of Stephen King's 1978 novel, The Stand. For those of you who are hearing this podcast first, I'd like to direct you to our website, booksandnachos.com, or search for Books and Nachos on iTunes. In both places, you can download the first five parts of this review. The podcast you're about to hear does not really stand alone. It's the final chapter in the most comprehensive review I've ever done, or ever will do. I'm going to talk in this review with the assumption you've been with me on this epic journey. So if you listen to this show first, or if you skipped one of the installments, much I'm going to discuss may not make sense. In those first five installments, I looked at King's inspiration and motivation for writing The Stand, and analyzed every facet every major and not-so-major character in the book. So given all that, looking at this novel as a whole, my final verdict is The Stand is a fine work of fiction, and I think it should be read not just by all King fans, but all fans of a good adventure tale. That said, readers have to be prepared for the story to get bogged down in the middle, and then with a few too many plot contrivances at the end. I said in part one of this podcast series that The Stand is one of my all-time favorite works of fiction, and it is. But favoritism isn't a critique. It is my favorite because when I hold the book in my hands, or even on my Kindle app, I'm taken back to the excitement I felt reading it on that spring day in 1994. I have fond memories of this novel, and have had great conversations about it with many people, including, hopefully, you, constant and devoted listener who is still with me so many hours later. But while it's one of my all-time favorite novels, I don't think it's King's best novel. So congratulations, Mr. King. If you're frustrated with fans who say your best work was done over 35 years ago, I don't count myself among them. Of the novels I've reviewed here at Books and Nachos so far, I think The Shining, your previous novel, outshines The Stand with its taut storytelling and its three-dimensional characters. Of the King books I've read in the past decade, The Shining holds my top spot, but as I continue this Books and Nachos journey through all of King's works, I may yet find one better. But the writing in The Stand is at times great. The excitement King brings for all of book one is truly masterful and kept my hands glued to the page, even on the third reading in a short period of time. Also, the first hundred pages or so of book three can't be put down. I said the writing is at times great, but also at times, some of King's writing techniques, utilized primarily in book two, made things confusing to me. Many segments of the story are told in a non-linear fashion. There are flashbacks from before the first page of the novel in order to give backstory for many of the characters, but even in the timeline of the novel itself, there are often times where time will jump forward only to then have characters recollect events that occurred earlier. Let me give an example. It was somewhat disorienting to have Larry arrive at the Vermont Plague Center after Stu, Fran, Harold, and Glenn had left. We know the foursome were there because Larry found the sign left by Harold. Yet I, the reader, never knew the foursome returned to Vermont. 
It's not until 50 pages later in the book that we read an excerpt from Fran's journal, which includes stories of their travels on the road, including their visit to the Plague Center. So we read from Fran's first-person perspective about Harold planting a sign that Larry had found 50 pages earlier. This added a good measure of confusion. But again, that was almost all found in Book 2. And I've said it enough times, but with all the bloat in Book 2 of The Stand, it's just bogged down. The Stand is King's longest novel to date, and I don't think it justifies the page count. Just because a book is about the Bible doesn't mean it needs to be as thick as the Bible. Yet even though I think The Stand needs trimming in Book 2, that doesn't necessarily mean I prefer the shorter version of the novel. Are all those extra passages worth adding back in? Well, in the wise words of Mother Abigail, mayhap it is, mayhap it ain't. On the one hand, some of the writing makes a lot more sense now. When I read the abridged version in my third pass through in The Stand, I realized there are simple phrases like, Mother Abigail turned back to them. That didn't make a whole lot of sense. When did she turn away? She did that in a paragraph or two that was cut from the page. There's several similar beats in Larry Underwood's journey west with Rita, and then shortly after Rita's death, where things don't exactly make sense. I can't say I noticed them or they drew me out when I read the abridged novel the first time, but once you see this writing in the context of the original prose, suddenly it's obvious that they don't make sense in the abridged version. But beyond simple grammar and prose, the question becomes, do we need more stand? Do we need to have more stories of Larry's history to know how self-centered he was? Do we need to have Franny fight with her mother, a fight that ultimately ends with her mother dying off-page? Mayhap you do, mayhap you don't. If you love the stand and its characters, these scenes are a way to revisit old friends anew. Fans who had loved this book and reread it a dozen times in the 12 years since it was published undoubtedly relished every new moment they could spend with these characters and enjoyed even further exploration into their history. But for anyone who doesn't love this book, nothing in the editions improves it. It just makes it more, longer, heavier. As King wrote in his foreword, this is the same story, but now you're reading it at the pace King originally intended, by and large. I enjoyed several editions, especially again in book one, my favorite part of the novel. That was when the main characters were at their best, and I enjoyed spending that extra time with them. But some editions are extraneous. I really didn't need to see Trash Can Man sodomized with a pistol. I'm not sure what that added to his character or my understanding of him. Did I need Nick to not only lose his teeth, but also most of the use of one of his eyes? No. The editions didn't improve the book. So I'm honestly torn on which version I prefer. Both have their pluses and minuses. The shorter version has the better beginning and ending. It's better to start in Texas and not let us know about the army base. It makes the car full of dead bodies more exciting, and the symmetry of starting and ending with Stu is better than ending on a random beach. Yet for anyone reading this novel for the first time, I'd honestly suggest the 1978 printing that sets the story in 1980. This is a story that reeks of the 70s, the attitudes, the concerns, mentioning of gas shortages. Moving the stand to 1985 or 1990 just creates some anachronisms that don't fit. And I think the better start and the shorter length would be better for an uninitiated reader. But because of the gaps that are filled in with the longer version, such as finding the kid's body eaten by wolves, I'm going to say I prefer the unabridged version. It's a special edition that was worthy of King's efforts. And there's yet another Star Wars parallel. By restoring the stand and also updating it, King did in 1990 what Lucas would do to his original trilogy in 1997. But at least in the stand, Larry still shot first. 
This is King's most ambitious novel, and that he succeeded as well as he did is a marvel. King is an avid fan of baseball, so let me put it this way. I thought with The Shining, King had a grand slam. With The Stand, King hit a long drive to the back wall and ended up on third base. I stand by book one being the best writing of King's career, at least to date, possibly ever. All the writing King had done to this point coalesced in these early parts of The Stand. All the times King utilized rats in his night shift stories and the cut passage from Salem's Lot, well, the rats are back in the Lincoln Tunnel to great effect. King's story, The Last Rung on the Ladder, discusses high barn lofts, imagery utilized as Harold climbs up high to paint his note on the barn that Larry would later find. And likewise, a little girl breaks her leg, falling from a loft in the aftermath of the disease. The idea that Flag crucifies citizens for a single drug use? That sounds like an only slightly more extreme version of Quitter's Inc. Obese, greasy Harold mows his lawn wearing nothing but shorty shorts? A small leap away from Night Shift's Lawnmower Man. But most of all, let's not forget He Who Walks Behind the Rose, that god from Children of the Corn. Here, King uses so much of that same corn imagery that some fans have gone to believe Randall Flagg is He Who Walks Behind the Rose. I disagree with that theory, as I mentioned in that short story review, but that imagery and more is all in the stand, and that truly elevates it to great American literature. But most of this is in book one or the very early parts of book two. And when I hear people say The Stand is their favorite novel, I have to believe it's this section they're thinking of and not the formation of committees. There's a lot more to The Stand than Captain Trips, and that's not necessarily a good thing. Please, don't take my harping on the latter books of this novel as damnation of The Stand. It's a very good book, and abridged or unabridged, I really suggest everyone find the time to read it. Maybe the reader will give up in book two, and that's okay. But if they find themselves lost and wanting to give up in book two, tell them I promise he gets better in book three. And while there are parts of this novel that don't congeal, the overall book is well worth the time. I feel it was worth all the time I spent reading it, and I did it three times over this year alone. And though I'm not rushing back to it again, I've read it once a decade since 1994. So come 2025, I will likely pull that unabridged version off the shelf once more. Yet this novel was also one of King's own favorites. He said that he doesn't reread his own work that often, but time and time again he'd return and reread The Stand. As someone who's written a little, I wonder why that was. Was he studying his own technique? Was he reviewing things he wished he could change? Was he just reading it the way I'll rewatch a film for pure entertainment? It's a curious notion indeed. It is telling that The Stand was the novel King became most protective of for a theatrical adaptation. While the author was freely selling the movie rights to his other novels and short stories, he held on to the stand for himself to adapt to screen. In one interview, he said, quote, I will be doing the screenplay for The Stand. I wouldn't trust it to anybody else. In fact, I've been offered option deals on The Stand before, and I've turned them down. Some of them have been for pretty good money. But this is maybe the one thing I've done where I want to get as much creative control over the movie as I can get. If it's going to get bitch up, I want to do the bitching up. I don't want to let somebody else do it, end quote. He initially envisioned The Stand as a TV miniseries, but he thought it would have to be on PBS because, in his words, you can't have, quote, the end of the world brought to you by Charmin toilet tissues, end quote. And cable stations in the late 70s and early 80s didn't have money for original series. In the mid-80s, King planned to work with his Creepshow collaborator George Romero on a Stand film. King had a script he thought would be a two-and-a-half-hour film, but the project never came together. 
It would take over 15 years, but finally the stand would be brought to screens in the way King figured it wouldn't happen, as an ABC miniseries. And there may well have been a Charmin ad played. You can hear my full review of that miniseries, along with the thoughts of my co-hosts Jacob and Stuart, over at our movie review podcast found at nowplayingpodcast.com. But while I enjoyed the miniseries greatly, some hammy performances and a low-budget hamper it. The cliché is true. The book is better than the movie. But maybe King was rereading the stand so often during this period as these film options kept appearing. Or perhaps he reread the stand because he wasn't done with it. Not only because of the abridged version, but because of the character of Flag. The dark man from the stand would return again in King Fiction. Yet, connections with the stand are tricky. As King's writing progressed, he created almost a Stephen King version of the Marvel Universe. With all his tales in Castle Rock and characters from one book cameoing in others, King was creating a shared reality in which Cujo, Christine, the body, and it could all coexist, really culminating with needful things. Yet the stand, by its very topic, can't be in that same, what they call, prime reality. Because it takes place in 1980 or later, it could be the same world in which Carrie, Danny Torrance, and Ben Mears all lived, their stories just happening before Project Blue was set loose, but as this novel reflects the end of the world, King's future stories, set in a more familiar and functional America, just can't take place in the same reality. And as such, Flag cannot be the antagonist in Needful Things or It. That's not his world. There was one addition in the uncut version, though, that did allow King to tie this novel to some of his future works, making it all very circular. A novel published in the 70s, referencing ideas created in the 80s, because it was reprinted in the 90s. As the world burns, King made it his shadow government organization, The Shop, put in charge of the quarantine operations. Of course, we saw how well that went. And King would not ever write a direct sequel novel to The Stand. It's unknown exactly where Flag awoke in this book's epilogue or what happened to the primitive people he encountered. Instead, Flag would return in King's medieval fantasy novel, The Eyes of the Dragon, and come to play a key part in King's eight-book fantastical Dark Tower saga. That's a shame, because I would have loved King to write a sequel novel to this. Given that he recently wrote Doctor Sleep, a sequel to The Shining, it's still not too late. I really like to know how the rebuilding of America went. When King ended the novel, he said he didn't know if people ever really learn. Maybe now, as an older man, he has some ideas. But while there may be no Stand 2 still standing, King would eventually return to the stand in the unabridged edition. In that revision, he writes that he started the stand in February 1975 and ended in December 1988, a 13-year writing journey. I do have to wonder, though, why King decided to revise the stand and to do it when he did. I find the timing of it, especially that December 1988 date, highly suspicious. I mentioned earlier that King only suffered writer's block twice in his life. The first time was after he finished Carrie. It took him some time to find the story that would become Salem's Lot. The second time, however, was 1988. After an intervention staged by his wife, King stopped doing drugs and drinking alcohol. It was in the late 80s that King started a path to sobriety. Partially, he was scared of being sober. He feared that without the drugs and the drinking, he wouldn't be able to write, and that self-fulfilling prophecy came true. For the first time in his life, King was writing nothing for the first half of 1988. It was also kind of a down year for King. In 1987, King released four, yes, four novels, Eyes of the Dragon, 
the second Dark Tower novel called The Drawing of the Three, Misery, and Tommyknockers. But then, for the first time since King was published, came an almost two-year gap with no new books until The Dark Half was published in late 1989. Even movie studios seemed to have dethroned King. 87 had returned to Salem's Lot, The Running Man, and, best of all, Stand By Me. But in 1988, not a single King film was released. By and large, 1988 was a year that King checked out. He did get his mojo back by mid-year and begin the dark half, but this timing seems more than coincidental. I've searched, and I can't find any place where King discusses this. It's for obvious reasons that King may not want to go into the private details of his sobriety, but I can't help but suspect that when 1988 rolled around and King couldn't write, perhaps he, or maybe his wife, thought if he couldn't write, he might be able to rewrite. This is conjecture. But the fact that King had writer's block in 1988 and he states he did the final revision of The Stand the same year, I don't believe in coincidence. So something that year caused King to finally go back and right the wrong he felt levied against him by Doubleday a decade before. Perhaps it was just that The Stand had its 10th anniversary, but the result is the longer version published two years later. That said, the shorter version of the novel also had a major impact on King. The author, as I'd mentioned during some previous reviews, had been growing dissatisfied with his publisher Doubleday for personal and financial reasons. Their demands for the cuts in The Stand was the final straw. As such, The Stand ends what I consider the first age of Stephen King novels, the Doubleday years. It was in these five books, printed from 1974 through 1978, that King became an established author. Having reread his first five books in just the past 14 months, I can certainly see how his writing form progressed. With The Stand becoming a hardcover bestseller, he also started to become respected by his critics and peers. But I'll say this, while two of his first four novels are among the best he's ever done, his writing seemed unpredictable. Vampires, Ghosts, Then the Flu? It felt like King was trying to get his footing on the type of author he'd become. It's after The Stand that the second King era began. When he returned to bookshelves next, at least under his own name, with the novel The Dead Zone, he would for the first time find his own name at the top of the New York Times hardcover bestseller list. And the year following The Dead Zone, Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of The Shining was released in theaters. This is when King novels would fill bookstore window displays, my friends and their parents would be reading every Stephen King new release, new movies would be released every few months, and the author would be crowned the King of Horror. More, though, that unsteady footing was gone. Pet Cemetery, Dead Zone, Christine, Cujo, all the way until It, the books had a similar vibe and feel, and many even took place in the same town. The true Stephen King universe at last. The changes were not just in King's writing, though. King himself was changing, and changing publishers, and The Stand was much of the reason. To look back, it really could be said that King owes his career to Doubleday, and specifically to Doubleday editor Bill Thompson. King had sent Doubleday his novel, Getting It On, which was later published under the Bachman name as Rage. Editor Thompson refused that novel, but he saw promise in the author. And later, Thompson contacted King to see if the author had anything new to look at. And that's when King submitted Carrie. After previous rejections, the author wasn't even thinking of going to Doubleday for publication. It was Thompson's proactive reaching that made Carrie get picked up. And in perspective, in the early 1970s, King was excited and honored that Doubleday would give him $2,500 up front to publish Carrie. But in the years that had followed, King grew a little more restless. Part of the issue was the money. 
King was a fairly wealthy man by the time The Stand was published, but that was almost in spite of Doubleday rather than because of them. Under King's five-book contract, the author's advances, the amount of money he was paid before the book was published, totaled only $77,500. That averages to only about $15,000 per novel, and they were only letting him release one novel per year under his own name. While $15,000 went further in the 70s than it does today, it's still really not a lot of money. And you'd think that King would be making good money in the royalties based on the sales of the book. And on paper, he might have been, but it was money he wasn't actually receiving. It was the rare best-selling author that would earn more than $50,000 in royalties per year. And so, the standard double-day contract stipulated that any monies earned over $50,000 would be invested and the author would be paid up to $50,000 per year. As such, King may have been earning millions in royalties, but that money was going into Doubleday accounts, drawing them interest, while King received a fraction of it. Now, I'm not playing a small little fiddle for King. The author wasn't hurting for money. He received a great deal by selling the movie rights to his novels and the short stories, as well as the foreign rights to his book. More, Doubleday was selling his books to paperback publisher New American Library for very large sums. While Doubleday's contract only gave King 50% of the paperback earnings, it was at least paid versus those royalties held in perpetuity. And while you may think I'm getting a little bit too much into the business, if you're sticking with me for the long haul, I'll be bringing these royalties up again because it's because of them we even have Pet Cemetery published at all. But back to the 70s, if you think back to 1978 and King's Place then, Many of his books had been optioned for films, but only Carrie and then the TV thing Salem's Lot had been released. Based on the Carrie movie, King was becoming a best-selling author, but he wasn't a superstar. That wouldn't happen until the 80s. It may be hard to think of him as anything but, but back then he was an author doing well, and not much more. And because of that, every time King went to the Doubleday offices, his editor, Bill Thompson, would have to reintroduce the author to all the executives at Doubleday. King's books were on the bestseller charts and earning lots of money, and this lack of attention made King feel unimportant. The demand by, as King called it, the accounting department to cut 400 pages of the stand and not even to allow specialty presses to run it in full frustrated the author further. In interviews around the time, King would complain about the publisher, even down to the actual quality of their printing and binding. In one interview, he said, quote, I like books that are nicely made, and with the exception of Salem's Lot and Night Shift, None of the Doubleday books were especially well-made. They have a ragged, machine-produced look to them, as though they were built to fall apart. The stand is worse that way. It looks like a brick. It's this little, tiny, squatty thing that looks much bigger than it is. End quote. Now, I understand a book writer would likely be interested in book quality and be a book aficionado, but it shows the level to which King was unhappy that he'd speak about it publicly at this level. Things would change starting in 1976. That was when King met Kirby McCauley, the man who would become the author's first agent. King wasn't interested in an agent, but McCauley had persevered, and finally King was convinced to test the waters and let McCauley sell some of his short stories. If you listen to my reviews of the Night Shift short stories, I always mention the location where they were originally published, and the vast majority of times I was mentioning titles I'd never heard of, like Ubris, which it turned out was King's college creative writing journal, or Cavalier a men's magazine to which King would send his stories. But then there were some outliers, magazines whose names you've actually heard, such as Penthouse and Cosmopolitan. Those stories were sold when Macaulay got involved. 
After the stand was delivered to Doubleday, King's five-book contract was fulfilled. With the frustration over the stand's abridgment, the royalty money, and more, King hired Macaulay to represent him and attempt to renegotiate. In King's own words, a writer who's his own agent has a fool for a client. King wanted more than 50% of the paperback sales. He felt 50% was fair for books that made little, but now his paperbacks were earning so much based on his name that he felt that Doubleday was deliberately ripping him off. Now, I don't chalk this up as greed. King's problems were both artistic and financial. Finally, King and Macaulay gave Doubleday a one-time offer. King wanted $3.5 million up front for his next three novels, which he knew would be The Dead Zone and Firestarter, both of which he started writing during The Stand. The third book would have ended up being Cujo. Now understand, again, referring to the greed, the upfronts are against the royalties. So this is money Doubleday likely would have made back in royalties eventually, but King just would have gotten it in advance. Doubleday refused, offering only $3 million and no changes to their agreements in paperback sales and the royalties being 50000 a year. And so King ended up at a new publisher, the New American Library, which was the publisher who had published all of King's paperback books and released King's secret Richard Bachman titles. And with that change, the true era of King fiction began. And of course, with the power his best-selling status had, not only did he eventually become able to override editorial edicts, allowing his books to be as long as they wanted, but in 1990, was finally able to bring out his special edition of The Stand. But I really think that 1990 edition not only updated the book, but cemented its place as an important novel in King's bibliography. As I mentioned, for the entire length of the 80s, movie adaptations of The Stand languished, even with George Romero attached. When the 1990 edition became a bestseller, the first hardcover reissue to do so, I don't think it's coincidence that three years later, The Stand was finally adapted for the television miniseries. The Stand also continues to be adapted, though King has finally loosened his grip on the script after the miniseries was made. In 2008, Marvel Comics began releasing their graphic novel adaptation of The Stand. Now sadly, it is not a Marvel Zombies-like crossover where Captain America and Spider-Man find themselves in a Captain Trips diseased New York with Randall Flagg coming. Though, in all seriousness, I'd pay through the nose to read that. No, while the publisher is best known for their superhero characters, they had been publishing some tie-in comics to King's Dark Tower series. Their relationship with King expanded as they released a 31-issue direct adaptation of this novel. The script was written by Roberto Aguirre Sacasa and overseen by King himself. Sacasa, perhaps best known for his work writing on TV series such as Big Love and Glee, had written a run of the Fantastic Four for Marvel. As Sakasa describes it, he had to audition for the job of scripting the comic by adapting the Hand of God scene, and that sample was sent to King himself. I guess the author, as well as Marvel Comics senior editor Ralph Macchio, no relation to the Karate Kid, felt any author who could write that tricky, polarizing scene well could handle the rest of the novel too. Sakasa was a fan of The Stand, and while he described the job as challenging, the interviews seemed to indicate he relished it. As Marvel adapted it, they split the stand into six graphic novels, and each graphic novel would have five comics, six in the last. I'll say when this started in 2008, I was really excited for this comic. I had the issues added to my pull list, but I found the pace of the storytelling to be frustrating. So I decided to be what they called a trade waiter, waiting for the compiled graphic novels to be released. And then I only bought Captain Trips, the first collection, because again, the time between releases was just too great. I found I couldn't get any momentum on reading when I had to wait six or seven months between segments. 
The stand may be the length of a Dickens book, but it was never intended for such periodical consumption, and the comic adaptation didn't help much. I decided I'd wait until they were completely done with the stand to read it. They did finish that back in 2012, and I picked up the Omnibus that year. This review gave me the excuse I needed, though, to finally pull it from the shelf. Now there were no long waits, I'd be able to judge this as one large graphic novel instead of 36 issues of the comic. The adaptation is extremely faithful to King's 1990 unabridged novel, to the point that Sakasa didn't even update the timeline. People are still watching CRT televisions. A white man is sitting in the Oval Office, and there are no cell phones or DVDs. The only concessions made for time are things such as the Twin Towers aren't in the Manhattan skyline, and what few product logos are used are current. The rest could take place in 1990, or maybe even 1980. In terms of the text, the floating boxes of narration is more often than not a direct lift from King's prose, and even the dialogue is also straight from the novel. Sakasa even keeps King's flu-made-who in joke. That said, there are changes made. Obviously, the story is abridged and the storytelling rearranged for the medium, but the book was also censored. While Marvel has been known to print explicit content in their Max line of comics as well as their imprint comics, the stand adaptation was put one notch down with only a parental advisory label. The obvious intended audience here is primarily teens, though Marvel's actual classification is teens and adults. As such, the comics could have horrible depictions of gore and death, but sex and swearing was kept to a minimum. God bless American entertainment where death is fine but sex is verboten. So fuck is changed to frig, and bat shit just becomes bat with some ampersands, hash symbols, and dollar signs after it. The pacing is actually very similar to the novel. Book 1 of The Stand comprises the first two volumes of the graphic novel. Book 2, being the longest, spreads through volumes 3 through 5. And finally, in volume 6, the good guys make their stand. As close as it is to the book, it carries many of the same strengths and weaknesses. Being so much shorter, though, I find a lot of the richness of character King created is lost. Some of the anecdotes remain, even Kojak gets a full page spared for his journey, but I found I couldn't connect with the characters without spending so much time with them. Yet the abridging also did strip away hundreds of characters who weren't very important in the end. I felt book two could use some abridging, and what was done in the comic is an improvement. To be true to the novel, there still are committee meetings, town halls, but they go by faster and they're fewer. I was able to read the entire omnibus in one long evening. It was akin to reading the Cliff Notes version of The Stand. I got the basic story, but not the spirit. In that way, though, I could see myself returning to this comic even more often than I do the novel. It's bite-sized, quickly consumed. It won't replicate the novel, but it will remind me of it. And the connections I've made to these characters because of King's long-form prose allows me to project and remember while reading this short comic. I also really like some of the art in the book. The depictions of Flag and Mother Abigail especially are well-drawn and detailed. The artist Mike Perkins even gave Larry a passing resemblance to the boss. Though sometimes the art goes askew. Flag particularly sometimes appears to have a lumpy face like the Elephant Man, and I don't know if that was intentional or not. But with only a few exceptions, the character designs are great. For 20 years, I fought to read King's prose and not think of the characters from that ABC miniseries. I want to think of the characters as King describes them, not Rob Lowe, Ruby D, and Gary Sinise. For some characters, that's easier to do than others, though in my mind, Ray Walston was and always will be Glenn Bateman. This comic helped with that some, to see descriptions based right off King's prose and to give new physical representations to the characters. Sure, 
not all gel, like especially Glenn and to a lesser degree Ralph, but the others are well done. King himself has a cameo in the comic too. In the novel, it was Whitney Horgan, one of Flag's inner circle, who speaks up against the execution of Larry and Ralph. Flag responds with the electricity burst that eventually morphs into the hand of God. In the comic, however, it's a totally new character introduced, one by the name of Richard Bachman, and he certainly looks exactly like King did in his 30s. It's a nice cameo that put a smile on my face. Additionally, the artist actually traveled to the locations featured in the book to make his art as real as possible, from Manhattan to Boulder to Vegas. It pays off. The cityscapes are beautiful. My only disappointment is that Marvel didn't try for a bit of synergy, for, as I mentioned way back in part one of this podcast series, in the 1978 printing, one character was reading Howard the Duck, a Marvel comic. I sort of hoped Marvel would cameo their own master of quack-foo in the stand, but alas, while there is that character and he is reading comics, no titles or art is visible. But Marvel's adaptation won't be the last. Long have rumors swirled about a feature film adaptation of The Stand. But recently, partially because of the success of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings films, it appears it may actually happen. The Stand may be produced as a multi-film epic, and the current rumors are that Matthew McConaughey will portray the walking dude, which I really think could work. If that film series happens, you know Stuart Jacob and I will review it at nowplayingpodcast.com. But as a final note, I'll say the interest by the fans in Hollywood proves The Stand is still an important book both in King's bibliography as well as to American culture. It seems to be the story that all King fans can discuss positively. And now that this review is done, as I said before, head over to nowplayingpodcast.com to hear our review of the ABC miniseries The Stand, as well as dozens of other King films, including the Mangler series, all nine Children of the Corn films, the four Carrie films, even both adaptations of The Shining. And if you haven't yet, also check out the archives of Books and Nachos for my review of every story in the Night Show series and the novels King has released thus far. Plus, I did skip ahead for a review of King's recent Shining sequel, Dr. Sleep. All those podcasts are at booksandnachos.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, I'd really appreciate hearing from you. Let me know your thoughts on The Stand. Did the hand of God work for you more than it did for me? Do you maybe enjoy the politics? Let me know by emailing arnyc at booksandnachos.com or come to the Books and Nachos forums. I'd love to see a discussion there on the stand among all you constant listeners. And with that, my long journey is at an end. And while I may not yet be ready to cast my three copies of the stand into the fires of Mount Doom, I do feel like the hardest part of my journey to review all Stephen King's works is over. Even though there are books that reach the length of The Stand, none I've read come close in terms of the complexity and the analysis I feel The Stand required. King described writing this novel as his own personal Vietnam, a battle with seemingly no end, and that every hundred pages he'd write, he was still shocked he couldn't see the end of the tunnel. I'd say the same for this review. With so much research and analysis I felt this book deserved, and then getting a mild version of Captain Trips myself, and then having my wife Marjorie have emergency surgery, delaying this release even further. But never have I had more demand for a Books and Nachos episode than for The Stand. And for those of you constant listeners that patiently awaited this review, I hope it met your every expectation. So if you're still with me, I thank you deeply for listening. And if you've marathoned this entire six-part review, I do hope your ears aren't bleeding from having the earbuds in so long. But we'll soon give your tired ears a short rest. But I will be back soon. Laws, yes! 
Over at NowPlayingPodcast.com, Stuart Jacob and I are about to review David Cronenberg's adaptation of King's novel The Dead Zone. So I'll be back here at Books and Nachos soon with that review. But first, there's even another novel to review, Richard Bachman's The Long Walk, published in July 1979, just one month before The Dead Zone. I will be back with the review of The Long Walk soon. And until next time, please remember to support your local bookstore or comic book store. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our show by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find dozens more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2015, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated.